And as we've come to this part of the book of Ruth, a very simple reminder of where we're at. This is the time of the end of the book of Judges, so it's about 1100 B.C. We know the time of the book of Judges was a very difficult time. People did what was right in their own eyes. There was lawlessness and great evil in the land, which we, of course, saw as we went through the book of Judges. But this book taking place in that timeline is a beautiful story. It's a love story. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of bitterness giving way to blessings. And it's just been such a joy to teach this book and go through this book with all of you over the last month. And as we come to chapter 4, the main players again are Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. So Naomi and her husband had moved to Moab 10 years before during a famine. So they left Israel and moved to Moab, left, sold their property, their estate, everything, and moved. There in Moab for 10 years, the two sons of Naomi married women, Moabite women, and then both sons died. Her husband also died. So in a 10-year period, she lost the three most precious men in her life, her husband and her two sons. But her daughter-in-laws loved her very much, both the Moabite women, and she encouraged them to remarry, go back to their families, go forward. She was going to go back to Israel, back to Bethlehem, where she was from. And so she told the girls, just stay here. You don't want to be with me. But Ruth insisted to go with Naomi. And she said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And I'm going to be by your side till the end of the journey. It was a great, deep, unconditional love coming from her. And again, what a major commitment from Ruth to make that decision to be with Naomi that way. She's saying goodbye to her family, her culture, the gods on the other side of the river. Everything she knew, she said goodbye and went forward in faith toward the God of Israel, Jehovah, his son Jesus, who's to come, the word of God, Mount Sinai, the burning bush, all of it, she's moving toward the things of God, which is a beautiful story. And there, when they came back to land, remember, Naomi said to the villagers, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter. So we know that she is hurt, and who wouldn't be hurt in that situation? She said, God's hand's against me. But through the course of events in the harvest season, Ruth began to glean in the field, the the barley field and the wheat fields of Boaz, who's a distant relative of Naomi. And there she found favor in the eyes of Boaz, and he allowed her to glean from the field lots of the wheat and barley and all that stuff. And this was a good sign for both Naomi from her perspective and for Ruth. So then in chapter 3, Naomi says to Ruth, look, I want you to have security. And Boaz is the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And that means he has the legal right to purchase back our land that we gave up, that we sold when we left 10 years ago. He has the legal right to raise an heir through you to me in our family line and various other things that the Goel legal rights were according to the law of God previously covered in the book of Deuteronomy. And so Naomi uh, sent out Ruth to go seek that security. Ruth came to Boaz in the middle of the night there in the barn, laid at his feet, and she essentially said, would you be my Goel redeemer? She submitted herself to him and asked him to take her. So she asked him to marry her. And he said, uh, you are amazing. Your kindness is more in the end than the beginning. You're an amazing young lady. You could have gone after rich young men or poor young men, anyone you wanted, but you've come to me. And he said, yes, I am the Goel, but there's one who's closer than I. So stay here tonight and I'll go after this tomorrow. 
So they go, well, had an order. They'd be like the first one, the closest relative, then the next closest relative, and so on and so forth. And Boaz knew that he was number two in line to be the Goel, the redeemer for Ruth. So when she asked him to be her Goel, he's like, well, that's, this is amazing. Uh, I'm flattered, but there's one before me. So that night they spent the night together. She at his feet, he beside her. And in the morning he gave her barley measured out to take to Naomi to show blessing and favor. And Naomi left off in chapter 3 where she said, listen, Ruth, you stay right here. The man's not going to rest till he gets this resolved and taken care of. And so off he went, this man, Boaz, with his successful business, all of his employees, his reputation. And that's the background to chapter 4. And there in chapter 4, we saw this verse by verse on Tuesday night. He comes to the city leaders, and he gets like 10 men together, and he grabs the other redeemer who's in front of him, the other Goel. He's never mentioned by name. He's just the, well, he's the starting quarterback, and Boaz is the backup quarterback. He's number two. He's in the two spot, or president and vice president. And he says, hey, you, come here, buddy. Sit down. Um, as you know, Naomi went to a faraway land. They sold everything. She came back with Ruth the Moabitess and all this, and you know the land's there. You are the kinsman redeemer. Will you redeem it back? And he says, oh, yeah, for sure I'll redeem it back. That means he had money. He could buy the property back. So he's next in line. He can fulfill that. He has the money. Because you can't, you know, just because someone offers you the house, if you can't buy it, doesn't mean it doesn't do you good. Like, yeah, it's a great house, but if you can't buy it, you can't buy it. But he could. So he says, yeah, I'll buy that property for Naomi. He says, well, when you do, you've got to take Ruth as well. And he's like, no, that's not, I'm not into the Moabite women. That's not my deal. That's just, we don't really know what his story was. He's like, I, he said twice, I cannot, I cannot do it. So it's in that background that we get our main verse tonight. In the middle of this initial conversation with the city leaders and uh, all the, it's like the city council and the, the, the leaders of the village and these important people. And there in verse 4, this phrase came up where Boaz is saying to the kinsman redeemer who's in front of him, not known by name. He said, look, I, I want to inform you saying, you know, buy this land back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. That is the key phrase we want to think about tonight. I am next after you. I'm next. I'm next in line, right? What? When we have a presidential election, we, we, we have the president and the vice president to go together because you always need a vice president. And we know in American history, a number of times, vice presidents and even beyond the vice president, like what happened with Nixon and then Agnew and all that, and then Gerald Ford became the president, you always have a next. You always have next. Who's next? Next in case of an emergency. Next practically. We talked about this Tuesday night, where people have a trust or a will, an estate. Using a trust, you have this, the primary trustee, and then you have successor trustees. So if the first person who would run the trust upon someone's decease is not willing or not able, then you have a next person and a next person to make sure the beneficiaries all get the payout and things get taken care of, uh, things in probate or quick claim properties and stuff like that. So you have successor trustees. That's... Principal, vice principal in a school. Starting quarterback, backup quarterback. Starting goalie, backup goalie, right? In soccer, like you, 
it's in our human nature to have someone prepared for next, but also in the human experience, we know someone always is next. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you're, you're buying trinkets there in D.C., you can buy a thing that shows all the presidents of the United States. And we can testify, starting with George Washington, John Adams, Jefferson, and the rest of them, there's always someone that's got next, including our current president right now. Someone's next. And as time goes on, someone will be next after him or her, whatever the future may hold. In the Bible, we see next all the time. Moses is going to die, and what does the Lord say to him? You're going to die. Joshua is next. So recognize Joshua in front of all the people, ordain him, and put him before the people to know that when you're gone, he's now the new leader. And this is what happens with churches. When, you know, Pastor Chuck goes to be the Lord, Brian Broderson, his son-in-law, gets next. It's just the way it, the way it works in the human experience. So there's, there's always a next. And when we think about our next, because generally there's a next for us. Because we say in the new year, like, hey, what's the next thing? What's next for you? What's, you know, I've talked with somebody, what's next at work? What's next in the new year? Next is getting married. Next is a new job. Next is a job transfer. Next is moving out of state, right? We watch a lot of people move out of state. What's next? When you think about, like in a business sense, when you talk about what's next, usually it's you being prepared for the next thing that you would do in your field of expertise. So if you're really, well, my in-law, Sue, Jennifer's older sister, she was a nurse for years. She decided she wanted to be a doctor. So what's next to be a doctor? She went to UCSD and did all of her stuff for her doctor, to become a doctor, did her residency in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and lo and behold, she became a doctor. And she practices medical stuff up in San Francisco. So there's, there's that idea of next. So like, what's next for Joy Brand? What's next for you? What, what's, what, what are, like, what does God have next for you? What is he preparing us for? Because we, we don't stop living and we're always wanting to grow. And, you know, we know people in this church have retired this year. So what's next with you in retirement? What does semi-retirement looks like, look like? What's, what's the vision? What's the plan? So I think this is a really good topic for us because in light of what we've all been through the last couple of years with the COVID pandemic and all that, everything's been shaken up. Like we might say, what's next for the global economy? What's next for the U.S. economy, the stock market? What's next for uh, cryptocurrency? What's next for the U.S. housing market? What's next for China and all their recession? What's going on there? Like what's next is sort of like something in the future and being ready for it. And what I like about this story in the context is when Boaz says, I am next after you, he's not going to be caught off guard for what is coming his way as next. This man is fully ready for what is coming next. He's got 10 witnesses and the village gathered together because he knows what's next. He's open to what's next. He's going after what's next. And it's lead, follow, or get out the way. If you're the other Goel, hey, step up or back out. I got next. Like they say on the basketball court with street hoop. Hey, we got next. We got next. Or even in surfing, there's priority, right? So someone gets the next pick of the waves, and there's, as you paddle back out, there are color codes based upon your jersey, and you're like, I'm second priority, they're third priority, and I got next. You move up the priority ladder in, in surfing, amateur and pro surfing. Now that's the way it works. So I want us to think tonight about next in 2022, going forward. 
your calling, your opportunity, your choices. Because, you know, next is a choice, too. If a guy asks a girl to get married, she can decide, is this the next thing in my life? I'm going to say yes and get married? Or like, I, I, I'm not going to get married. I'm not ready. That's, that's Maybe later, you know, like you just different things. Or, or you're at work and like, hey, we want to make you the vice president. But then you realize vice president's the same pay with double the work. I'm not so sure I want that next. The title sounds good, but the, the pay didn't change. What's next for our lives with the Lord in 2022? Just the future as a whole. What's next for our families? What's next for the church, for our country? There's a lot of next that we don't have any control over. You start Googling on YouTube, what's next for global economy, and the conflicts of perspectives are endless. But you seek the Lord about what's next in your life, you will hear clearly what he has for what's next for us. It's not my job to figure out what the Chinese are doing with their recession right now. It is my job to know what God has next for me in my marriage, with my children, grandchildren, in this church, and therefore call God in Christ Jesus, as it is for you. What's next? So, Let's frame it with that. What's, what's next? So, in, in this context of this, in verse 5 of what's, he says, I'm next, so I'm next. And he knew, he knew who he was. He knew he's the Goel, the backup Goel. He knows where he's at. He knows what's going on. He doesn't wake up. He's not on his heels. He's not in uh, response. He's proactive, not reactive. Let, let's just stop there for a second on that thought. We do realize in the story by now, Boaz is a proactive man, not a reactive man. He's a man of faith that goes to work, and he blesses people before they can bless him. He knows what Ruth has done for Naomi before Naomi ever tells him who she is. He already knows. This guy does a scouting report. This guy, this guy gets up early. He gets up early and gives weed away at the dawn of light to Ruth to take home to Naomi in chapter 3. This guy is in front of things, not behind them. So when he says, I'm next after you, he knows exactly what that means. He knows exactly who he is in the universe, where he's at with the Lord, what's going on around him within the city. That's why he's got the whole city gathered, the 10 witnesses. This guy, hey, fellas, sit down here. He knows exactly what he's... Like, like, like Naomi said to Ruth, don't you worry. He won't rest till the matter is settled. He's a doer. He gets stuff done. There's talkers and walkers. This guy gets it done. Some people talk about what happens. Some people just make things happen. Boaz makes things happen. So when he says, I'm next, he knows what that means. And in this context, when he says to the guy who's in front of him, unnamed Goel, he says uh, in verse 5, you see in your Bible there. Uh, so when he says, look, if you're going to do it, do it. If not, let me know, because I'm next after you. He goes, and, and, and uh, Goel number one, and then he goes, dude, I, I got this. Yeah, I'm, yeah I get it. I'll, I'll redeem it. Who doesn't want beachfront property in Dana Point? You know, like, I'll do it. I got the money. Sure, I'll, I'll buy back the property. I'm a benevolent man. I'm a good man. I'll, I'll buy that back for Naomi. Yeah, we're, we're all family here. Comma. Not period. This paragraph's not over, because then... Then uh, Boaz says in verse 5, Well, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead. 
to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. It's like, okay, well, you know, the land is one thing, but you got you to you marry her. Now, I think the story would imply she's an attractive woman just by, like, the things Boaz says. But nonetheless, he says, you know, it's one thing to think someone's cute or funny or uh, you're attracted to them. It's quite another to say, I will. Right, married people? I mean, yeah. It's quite another to say, I will. I mean, that's totally life-changing. Like, you do a wedding, and you say, okay, like, this is your life, bef- you know, before now, it was you and you, and, but now you grow in the Lord, you come together, and it's the two become one. It's like, it's, it's a game changer. And the next 30 to 40 years, or whatever marriage is, it's less of you, more of Jesus, and loving them unconditionally. And if you do that, you win. If you don't, you probably lose. It's death to self, serving others in Jesus' name. And um, so this guy, this other guy, Goel number one, who has money, has an inheritance, has an estate. He, he goes, I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. In case you didn't hear the first sentence, I'm saying it again. I cannot, I cannot. I cannot do this. It's not going to happen. And we talked about that on Tuesday night in application. Not so much tonight. But what I do want to emphasize is where Boaz says, you must also. So... Boaz is next, and he knows what the job really entails as the goel. We talked about the goel. The goel could redeem the land. The goel uh, is required to raise up an offspring for a brother or a relative that the perpetuation of the inheritance goes to the family. So you give up your name and your rights to marry into this and provide offspring. So it wouldn't be like the Joy Brand estate, but it's someone else's estate. Like, that's how that would work. So, of course, like, well, why am I going to build their house? I got my own house. Most people will put a prenuptial on that, you know, like on a second marriage or something. But you're actually giving that up. That's part of the whole deal. Like, like, you must also give up your name, your identity, your trust in your name. And now it's the trust in Naomi's name. And you're producing offspring for her. And the productivity or whatever comes to that offspring is her inheritance, not yours. So you must also, which means we need to count the cost. Because also is everything. Like we were saying earlier about if you're going to take the job and you're next in line for the job, what does the job really entail? In ministry, the first few years, you think you could run a church better than the one that runs the church. But when you get closer to it, you realize, and you get beat up a little bit and got some scars, you realize no one in the right mind would ever choose to be the lead pastor of any church under any circumstance, especially a large church. Because, oh, yeah, you're the lead pastor. You just get up and teach. And, and, you know, you greet people afterwards like, hey, have a nice week. You know, God bless you. You think that's what it is. You don't know what people are plotting evil against you and blaming you for everything wrong in their life. You don't know when you're Pastor Chuck and you're trying to minister to this guy who's unstable. He comes by your house, you get in the car with him, and he pulls a loaded gun on you and puts it to your head. True story, Pastor Chuck. The best part of that story, by the way, is Kay said, don't get together with that guy. He's going to pull a gun on you and threaten to shoot you. And so when the guy did it, Chuck said his first thought was, Kay's a prophetess. <laughs> True story. In big churches, people don't care so much about the assistant pastors. They want to leverage the lead pastor in a divorce, in a financial dispute, in a dispute amongst roommates in an apartment dwelling. You have no idea. 
Whenever we get involved in potentially violent things, stalkers, threats, death threats, stuff like that, people are like, I had no idea that you guys were involved with this. Like pretty much we, most of the time, especially in a big church, you just, you wouldn't know. So you want to be the lead pastor and get up on Sunday morning and seeing how great thou art instead of Pastor Chuck. You're like, I got this. We can do this until you realize what, what Pastor Chuck really did or what Brian Broderson really does or what I do here or Pastor Matt with Shoreline here on a Sunday morning. It's not just that I always tell people this. The teaching is the easy part of ministry. The tending is what will break you and crush you because you die for the flock as you protect the flock. And you correct the flock. The tending is the hard part. So you have to count the cost. And that's what we have here. To take a relationship from being like, we're cute, we think we're funny, he's cool, she's pretty, to like, we're going to get married, and for better, for rich, richer, for poor, you have to count the cost. You have, to, you have to consider the whole package when you're saying, I'm next and I'm available. When you say, I'm, I'm next and I'll do it, or like the first Goel, like, yeah, I can do that, I will do that. But no, you, you must also buy that. You must also do this. I remember when Jacob married Leah 10 years ago, I said to Jacob, the good news is you get to go home and, and go to bed with my daughter. The bad news is you got to get up at 7 in the morning and go make money so you can take care of my daughter. And he's done that for 10 years and has been very successful at it too. But like, hey, you know, see, the bad news is you can't go surfing just because the surf's good and the tide's right. <laughs> it doesn't work like that anymore. Like, it's, it's the whole package. So as we think about what's next for us with the Lord and we feel like, hey, maybe he's calling us to do this, maybe he's calling us to do that. If you move out of state, I mean, we, we look at the people we love very much that have moved out of state and what a big change that was. Right? So our friends that moved to Texas or our friends that moved to Indiana, it's like you wake up in Indiana and you, you have a home and you're blessed and God's taking care of it and you're working remote, but you know, it's now five below. And you still haven't found the church. It's your home church. There's always, there's always a lot there. There's a whole package when you say, I'm in for this. I'm going to go for this. There's all, E, all the above. And that's what Boaz uses here to this premier Goel. So he says, I'm next. But he, he exhorts this guy, reminds this guy, well, you got to also do this. You don't just buy the land. You're going to lose your identity and you're going to change your inheritance and you're going to commit to this Moabite woman. The Moabites, of course, were perpetual enemies of Israel. They were under the curse of God for 10 generations. We talked about that. And this woman's a widow. So just know, like, that's your responsibility. So, you know, it's so easy to say, yeah, I'll do this. And you're like, then you find out what it really is you, you got to do. And you start like getting on your heels sometimes. So give this guy credit. He just goes, I, I cannot, I cannot. Just, just can't do it. You know, I coach a lot of good surfers over 40 years. And it took a lot of good surfers to Hawaii. And everyone wants to surf the pipeline. And they're all going to surf pipeline. And like, they're all, back in our day, we're going to be like Jerry Lopez. And it's going to be like Kelly Slater, and who actually won there today. It's like, you know, and, and, and you know what happens when people see real pipeline for the first time? You find out really quick if they're ever going to surf pipeline or not. And, you know, there's guys that were really good surfers. 
that the first time, like friends from Carlsbad, whatever, were there on the North Shore, and it's like real pipe, and they're really good surface. They charge big waves in California, La Jolla, Reese. I'm like, and, and they're like, and I'm like, dude, this is this far. Let's get out. They're like, no. No, 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 no. You know, like this is where we, we, we part ways. I stay here, you go there. The I cannot goes a long way. And it's not a main point, but give credit to the girl who says, I cannot. And it's always okay to say, I just can't do that. It's just, it's not something I can do. It's not in me. It's not what I'm called to do. So we count the cost. The Goel who says, I'm next, I'm willing to step up, do whatever's required. We need to consider all the factors and count the cost completely. Then we see later on in verse 9, in this initial engage in conversation, they exchange the sandal and all that, which was in this text. But in verse 9, we get another phrase of what, you know, when we think about I'm next, that we need to think about. In verse 9, Boaz says, You are witnesses this day that I bought all that was Elimelech's, that of course was Naomi's husband's name, and all that was Chilion's and Mahalon's, those are the two boys, from the hand of Naomi. So, I have bought. This is where, this is where it, there is a commonality of capability between the original Goel, who tapped out and said, I cannot, and Boaz. They both, listen very carefully, they both were economically capable of fulfilling this task of the Goel. So let's say, for example, neither one of these guys is very wise with money. Neither one of them can buy the lot back. So you just got, who's next? Start going through the family registry, second cousin twice removed, Uncle Ernie that lives in New Jersey. You know, you start going through the list and trying to find someone that is qualified and can economically do what needs to be done. So this is, listen, this is not just an availability situation here. It's a, it's a, it's a genetic situation because you have to be in the family line. You have to have the bloodline, right? Tribe of Judah, Elimelech's immediate relatives, so there's only so many people that would... If you're from the tribe of Benjamin, you can't be the Goel. You have to be from the tribe of Judah and connected to this family. But even so, just because you're like... Like they say, you can't choose family. Just because you're family doesn't mean you can do it. You had to be economically the head, not the tail. Because now you're buying property for someone else. How many of us can buy a house for someone else or land? How many of us can buy a vehicle, because those are hard assets in 2022, for someone else? How many of us can contribute financially to send someone overseas on a mission trip or send away to a YWAM base or Bible college for four months in, in York, England or something? Like, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about having the economic strength to be able to do something economically for someone else. That's what we're talking about here. So now, to even be able to step up and do this, but the first girl said he could. I can buy about that. So these are two guys that have money in the bank. The first girl, yeah, I'll buy it. Yeah, I can do that. But no, not, not the girl. Boaz was economically able to meet this need. This gets my attention, because this... At least for five minutes or so, we want to talk about the economic element of him being able to do something here. If he doesn't, if he's not economically ahead, he can't do this. It's that simple. Now, we all have different places in life. We have different financial needs. We have different financial stuff that we face. And 
I've taught quite a bit on biblical stewardship and sowing bountifully. John Wesley said you should work hard. That's rule number one of biblical finances. Work hard as unto the Lord. Number two, save as unto the Lord. And number three, sow bountifully as unto the Lord. Those are the three things John Wesley said, the founder of the Methodist Church, over two centuries ago. Work hard, save, and sow. And you live for 80 years and you try and balance those things out. The debtor is always a slave to the lender. And as we go into debt, bad debt, there's good debt and bad debt. Good debts, you're using the bank's money to make money for you and not paying taxes to Caesar. That's good debt. Bad debt is you're living beyond your means every month and digging a hole that you're not going to be able to get out of. The problem with bad debt is you're presuming, and we've talked about this, you're presuming that God's going to give you tomorrow to clear a debt that you can't manage your affairs today. So as you build debt on month-to-month cost of living debt, on a credit card or whatever, what's happening is you are living in 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 a standard by which is not maintainable. And you're going in reverse. And the real, the real test of where you're at for eternity is if you step into eternity today, what's your net worth? Are you leaving wealth behind for people around you to pay for your memorial, your funeral? That's usually about 15 grand minimum. Are, are, are the burial costs being passed on to the people that love you? Are you leaving debt for them? Are you leaving generational wealth for your children, your, your grandchildren? Because a wise man, a, a righteous man, leaves inheritance to his children's children. And I've traveled the world, and we in this country have way more economic opportunity than anywhere else I've ever been on planet Earth. Not even close. The opportunities in America, even to this day, are, are there. Almost anyone in this state in this county can show up somewhere tomorrow and get a job for 15 bucks an hour to put food in their stomach and begin a process to put a roof over their head. Now, a lot of people left California because of the cost of living. We understand that. And it might be more affordable somewhere else. And we know inflation is at 7 to 15%, depending on how you define it. We all realize what's going on right now. But the bottom line is this. If the Lord is our provider, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto us, food and clothing, and we're to acknowledge him with our first fruits. The tithe is where he says, put me to the test. It's the only thing he says like that in the entire Bible, by the way. Put me to the test and I'll show myself to you. And just a footnote. For about 15, 18 years, I used to tell people, we're not under the tithe. We're not under the law, blah, 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 and all that stuff. We give as we choose to give, which, of course, the New Testament says. But let me tell you where I turned it around economically is when I began to tithe. When I began to tithe... And I would always tithe and honor the Lord the first fruits of my fruit, the first fruits of my increase. I've been blessed ever since. Very blessed. And because I tithe, I'm free from fear with economics because I know that I'm putting the Lord first, I'm acknowledging first. Because I sow bountifully beyond the tithe because I choose to, I don't fear a bad economic day. I'm not going to, if the whole economic world of Joy Brand Enterprises falls apart, I'm not going to say, oh, I want, like, oh, Lord, why? Maybe I should have done this or should have done that. No, I cast my bread upon many water, and I start with the Lord. And by the way, when people leave this church and go somewhere else, you know what I tell them to do? Do not tithe to this church. Because where your treasures, your heart will be also. So all of our friends that moved to Texas, the last thing I tell them is, don't send us your tithe. You need to invest your tithe in Texas where you are. Because that's your new home. And the sooner you find your home church and start tithing, your heart's going to be there too. 
and that's your future. We're your past. If you want to send us beyond the tithe, good for you and good for us. Because about half of what we do goes into international missions. That's your business, but don't send me your tithe. You tithe in Indiana. You tithe in Idaho. You tithe in Pennsylvania. You tithe where you go. Because we're trusting the Lord, and we don't need your tithe. We need the Lord. And we're God, guys, he provides, right? So Boaz stayed in the land during a famine when people, including his relative, Imelech, left. But he stayed, and he prospered. Like Isaac sowed in the land, and he prospered. And he was a generous man. He was a wealthy man. Boaz worked hard. Boaz saved. And Boaz gave, right? What did he do in chapters 2 and 3? He's giving out stuff to other people. That's who we want to be. I see what the Lord's shown me. And I know why I'm blessed as a person. I know my family's blessed. My kids are blessed. And this church is blessed. And I want you to be blessed. And maybe you are blessed because you understand biblical principles in economics. But oh, is there a worse witness? Ah, let me reframe that. Don't presume God's going to give you tomorrow to clear up your debt. If you've got bad debt, clear it up as quickly as possible. And don't put that on people when you step into eternity. Clear up your mess. Don't put that on anyone. That's a bad witness. Because Jesus on the cross, Jesus risen from the grave, Jesus at the right hand of the Father is not about being the tail. It's about being the head. And for sure, we're called to forsake all things. I get it. We understand New Testament stuff. But the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And the Bible says that you who used to steal, work hard and have something to give. And the one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Boaz was economically able to step up and buy this property for someone else. And by the way, I can't think of a more honorable way to live the last 20 years of your life than being like that person, that woman, that man. Because that's the, that's the woman God will use. You're the conduit that God will use. When it really is about moving things for the kingdom to bless others, then you... Raul, when he moved to Texas, he told his father-in-law who ran the, the company, I will move to Texas under one condition. If you will tie 10% of all company profits to the ministry of my choice. And his father-in-law said, yeah, I'll do that. They send tens of thousands to Franklin Graham's ministry at Samaritan's Purse. And their company has thrived and flourished in Texas. I could go on and on and on. But he was economically able. So, and what's next for you? If what's next is like, say you live somewhere out of state, and what's next, God says, you're going to California. You're like, well, how's that work? Because I talked to someone five years ago, and they said, we believe God's calling us back to California. Okay, so you're a young couple. Let me ask you this. How much money have in the bank? None. What's your credit? I don't have any credit. Well, it's not bad or good. No, I just don't have any credit. Okay. Um, what's, your, what's your job? I don't have a job. We live with my family. <laughs> let me break it down to you. If you're going to move back to California, you're going to need about 10 grand right now, first, last security, and you're going to need somewhere to land to get a job to show you have regular income to get the rental. And of course, now we know it's way different than five years ago. And I told him, I said, let me give you a lesson in life. 
when you have some financial liquidity that you have cash, you have more options. And God says, let's move this way. Let's give that away. Let's so that you can. But if you're in debt and you're a slave to the lender, there's not much you can do except hope something big piece of loaf of bread falls out of heaven on your head. But that's not really how God works. And in faithful stewardship with the little things and the big things, that's where you can be faithful and God will give you more. And if you're faithful with two minus, he might just give you five. And if you're faithful with five, he might give you 10. But God's looking for faithfulness. What do we learn with Joseph in the book of Genesis? What do we see time and time again? Boaz was economically able to meet this need. So next, this calling is to buy this land back for Naomi. And he says, I can do that. He can do it because he was wise and frugal with his finances. The third thing we see, he says this, the third thing. I love the third thing. Verse 10. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahalon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. He said, you, need to also do, you must also do this. I have bought, so he's got the, the economic resources, and here he goes, I have acquired Ruth. Isn't this beautiful? I have acquired Ruth. He's like, I'm getting married. Guys, I'm getting married. Boaz is getting married. <laughs> I talked about maybe on Tuesday night, they're the odd couple, right? The, the, the Moabite widow, the younger woman, the Moabite widow, Moabitess, and Boaz, and I said, instead of having opinions about their age or their backgrounds and all that, we should say, this is the Lord, and this is beautiful. He's like, I have a car to wife. He's like, <laughs> he's like, he looks over at the other girl like, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess. And I think he's rejoicing over it. I've acquired a wife. If a man gets a wife, he finds a good thing. And it's a good thing because men need help. We've talked about the romance and the love over this story. This is so beautiful. I've acquired a wife. So again, as we talked about counting the cost, and you must also do this, well, think about him. To marry Ruth, there's love and joy for sure. But think about the changes of his life. He's no longer, well, we don't know. He, there's no mention of another wife or another woman. There's no mention of marriage and divorce or anything like that or, or heirs or anything like that. So I think we can somewhat, it's most likely that he had, there's no one else and that he's been a single man and a very successful one to the benefit of the community. But he's getting married. And, you know, and the whole city's excited about this too. Like, the last thought we'll have tonight is how excited everybody else is. He's like, I've acquired Ruth. <laughs> Man. And it's like, like, they're getting married. Getting married is a beautiful thing with the Lord. You know that, right? We all understand that, right? It's a beautiful thing getting married with the Lord. It really is. The beauty of the relationship of Jesus with the church is described as the wedding feast. We are called his bride. He's called our groom. It is, it is the apex of human understanding. Understand the beauty of two people in love getting married. That is the apex of what we understand in love in the human relationships. And God takes that and says, that's me for you, church of Jesus Christ. I'm coming for my bride. So in the love that we most understand in the human experience, God says, since you understand that, because my ways are above your ways, as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts. So we can't really truly understand the magnitude of agape love of Christ on the cross and the glory to come. But he says, I will give it to you in a language you understand, the language of human love. 
a husband for his wife. That's my love for you. I'll give that to you that way, which you can relate to. So all that you've ever seen a wedding day, may you have a smile on your face. It's a beautiful thing. And he's given up his name, his identity, his individual freedom, the lifestyle he knew, he's given it all up to marry this woman. Like Jesus coming down from heaven, leaving his glory to get a bride, the church, the Gentiles, the church, all nations, Boaz leaves all these things and gives them up to get his bride, the Gentile woman, the widow, Moabitess, Ruth. And he is all in, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. The whole totality of who he is, he's like, I have acquired me Ruth the Moabitess. I'm getting married. And the village is practically dancing around. The rest of the book, the rest of the chapter is like, they're like classic Jewish pronouncing blessings, 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 blessings. That's what they're doing. The rest of the chapter is just pronouncing blessings. He's all in. So when you say, I am next, you count the cost. I have bought. That means you can do it. You can step up. You can do it. You prepared yourself for that moment. It's within you to accomplish what is next. And you can do it. Because you prepared yourself for that moment at the work, in the relationships, in the church, whatever it is. You prepared yourself economically, spiritually. You can do it. You prepared yourself. And now you've acquired. You've embraced what's next. And in this case, it's his wife. It's so beautiful. And as husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church, that's how Boaz is going to love this woman. You know it. He's a good man. He's a loving man. He's a kind man. He's a gentle man. He's a great husband. He won the lottery. He gets this woman that he just wants to marry. She won the lottery. She gets this incredible man. And they're going to spend the rest of their lives together sharing the journey. However many days are left, they're going to share that journey. They're going to share it the whole human experience. He acquired a wife. He stepped up and embraced the fullest responsibilities of when you say, I will. Therefore, by the power vested in me, by the state of California and the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I now pronounce that you are husband and wife. All in. Everything. So beautiful. But there's one final thought. Before we go home tonight, that's super important. It's the blessings. Because the one who's got next and steps up and does get next and does count the cost is able to step up and make it happen and is all in for it happening. That person with the Lord, when it's the Lord, they get all the blessings. And they're a vessel of blessings. The last part of this chapter, when he's... They're all witnesses before the, the, the leaders. In verse 11, it says the people were at the gate and the elders. They're all happy. They're all happy. It's like, oh, my goodness, there's going to be a wedding. We are witnesses. And look what they say in verse 11. The Lord make the woman, that's Ruth, who's coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. They take this Moabitess widow, this Gentile, perpetual enemy, and say, may she be like, you know, Leah and Rachel. They're like, they're saying, may she be more than the mothers of Israel. And she was. 
And they say, may you prosper in Ephrathoth and be famous in Bethlehem. Oh, they did prosper. And they were famous for their grandson. Their great-grandson is King David. We all know Bethlehem. How many people knew Bethlehem on this day? How many people know Bethlehem on now, here, and now? Yes. Which, because of the offspring, and they said, may you bear children like Tamar to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Isn't it a beautiful thing when the Lord's all over the marriage, the wedding? The Lord make the woman like this, to prosper, be famous, and your house be like the house of Perez. And then, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Then, when the babies, so they get married, they, they have sexual union, she became his wife, he went into her sexually, the Lord gave her conception. Okay, so who's behind the marriage? The Lord. Who's behind the baby in the conception? The Lord. Marriage is honorable, and the bed undefiled. This is the one verse in this entire love story that involves sexual union between a man and a woman, the way God blesses it, and it says, the Lord gave her conception. The Lord is in that verse. Isn't that beautiful? Wow. It's beautiful. So they have the child, and he's Obed, of course, and look at verse 14. Then the women, there's nothing like women in the village, right? A bunch of Jewish women in the village. Just a bunch of Jewish women in the village. Like, picture this. This is awesome. So what do they say? Blessed be the Lord. Again, the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. They're blessing the Lord. And they said uh, that may his name, okay, so blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. May his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a store of life and nourisher of your old age. Obed. Well, his name was famous in Israel. And he was a restorer of life. But listen, this is the closing kicker. So Naomi, who said, don't call me pleasant, but call me bitterness, Mara. There's a scene where she's got Obed on her lap, like Greg McCune with John, you know, or something like that, or Tammy, you know, John, or, or me and Jennifer, when we got Bon Bon or Remy. It's just like, oh, it's just this scene. It's like the happiest scene, incredible scene, beautiful scene. It's like the last scene of this movie, episode four, this last scene. That's the way it ends with the epilogue saying and then they had this children and then David came and the rest is history but this phrase got my attention verse 15 may he be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age you know the whole story revolves around Jesus Christ and the whole story is about Obed giving way to Jesse giving way to David and Jesus coming through David because the ultimate Goel and the ultimate kinsman redeemer is not Boaz but Jesus Christ. For we've been redeemed not by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of a lamb. And we sing in Revelation chapter 5, you who have redeemed us by your blood. He's redeemed us from the power of sin, the power of the devil, and and the, the fear of the grave. The church is redeemed by Jesus Christ. He's our ultimate Goel redeemer, much greater than Boaz to this family. But in this story of redemption, it's the offspring of Boaz and Ruth, Obed, who then leads way to David, who gives way to Jesus. And that's what's so fascinating in the kicker in the story is that in Matthew's gospel, the genealogy has Boaz and Ruth. In Luke's gospel, it goes all the way back to Adam, very important. It has Boaz, but not Ruth. So here's the most amazing thing. From the dawn of creation with Adam, 
all the way to the time of Christ, there's a genealogy of the promised Messiah coming, and this story is the express lane. This is the hav lane on the East Coast. This is the one that's just going right through. This is the lane. You say, stay in your lane. This is the lane of the Messiah who doesn't just restore the life of the bitter woman, but restores humanity. For in Adam, all sin and die, the first Adam, but in the second Adam, next, all will be made alive. The first Adam failed sin and death. Next up is Jesus Christ, the second Adam. And where Adam failed, Christ triumphed. And a restorer of life, they're just talking in the human terms of time, space, and matter. That grandson, that that son, Obed, and then the great-grandson, David, it's such a bigger story than just one woman not having bitterness anymore over her heartache. It's a story of redemption for all humanity. And it's the greatest love story in the universe. It's God's love for us, proven through his son, Jesus Christ, our Goel, kinsman, redeemer. And so we can say tonight, through faith in Jesus Christ, what Paul said, I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. For the Lord is my shepherd, and he's coming. That's our Goel.